Hello everyone. We're on a mid-season break this week, but so you're not left with nothing. Here's an audio recording of a roundtable that I undertook with Adam from UK Two Crime, Grace from Red Room, Mike from Murder Mile, and Paul from the True Crime Enthusiast. This is an audio recording, so please enjoy. If you want to actually watch the video recording, head over to the UK Two Crime YouTube channel, and Adam has popped it up on his YouTube channel. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome to the first ever True Crime Podcasters Roundtable. Thank you ever so much for joining us this evening. So I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Paul from the True Crime Enthusiast. Hi, Paul. Hi, Adam. Everybody. Hello. And Murder Miles Mike. Hi, Mike. Hello there. Sorry you can't see me, but, you know, maybe that's a blessing. <laughs> and we've got two fantastic guests for you this evening firstly we've got andy the co-host of picture the scene welcome andy welcome hello everyone now i did the welcome andy your job was just to say hello but let's hello. just skip over that um and grace host of the red rum podcast hello grace hello adam lovely to see you hello everyone watching and tuning in great to see you so Let's make a start. So in our first round here, we're going to last about an hour this evening, but our first round, we're going to ask our two guests, first of all, to tell us something in the world of true crime that's really on their mind at the moment, and we're going to chat about it. So let's start off with Grace. Over to you, Grace. Thanks, Adam. Um, yes, so I I wanted to talk a little bit, I'll dive in at the deep end, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ethics of true crime. Um, I think it's an incredibly complex and multi-layered subject. I think we see that issue come up through various types of true crime content. Um, I recently, I guess the conversation recently um, came to my mind because of a couple of dramatizations of series uh, like the Jeffrey um, Jeffrey Dahmer uh, dramatization and the Ted Bundy with, uh, I think it was Zac Efron. Um, and I mentioned those two specifically because I remember the backlash that I saw on social media, um, mainly relating to not getting consent from the victims or the families of the victims. And I think with big budget productions like those, obviously they have budget, they have teams, they can afford time and resource to put money into that area. Um, and oftentimes they still don't. And I think for us all as true crime content creators, it's something that we probably have all thought about. And I, um, I've i got lots of thoughts on it. I would love to hear what you, what everyone thinks and if you've dealt with it in, in the making of your content. Good stuff. Who's going to go first? Paul, what do you think? Right. So the, the Dharma thing, it has been very controversial, hasn't it? And I can see that they've chucked a big budget at it because it's such a world-famous case, if you like. I don't think you should go into things like this without trying to get, at least trying to get consent from victims or surviving families. If you can't, then do it as as true to what's in the public domain as, as possible. And say, I'll, I'll use an example from the UK. You, you've said about the true crime series, right? Say, there's been recently a, I think it was a seven or eight part dramatization about the Yorkshire Ripper that's been on ITV called The Long Shadow. Now, you're going to watch it because if you're a true crime podcast host or whatever, true crime is your thing. I was quite, I must say, I was quite disappointed with it because 
it's supposed to be banging on about it being about the victims and yet i would say one episode out of the lot was about the victims there was one victim they missed and there was one victim they got the name wrong completely and i think to myself that's unforgivable Mm. because there are still so many people surviving relatives of of these poor women and to not to to make mistakes like that or do it deliberately i think it's unforgivable so i think it can be if if it's true to the public domain it's it can be fabulous but out of sensationalism no i wouldn't touch it with a bad one i wouldn't watch it i haven't watched the dharma thing mm. because but yeah so that's what i think anyway yeah, I think I think that's such a great point, actually. And I wonder, I wonder how much time and effort was put into, especially that, as you say, I haven't um, watched that one. But as you say about the person who was just completely missed, or the person where they got the name wrong, it's, yeah. it seems like really simple things. It's it's really bizarre. And a, lo- a lot of it felt rushed. You know, it was more about it was more about the fella playing Oldfield. You know, and I think the second victim was the one focused upon with a family life because arguably it was like a very celebrated actress. I can't remember her name now, but she used to host Murder Town. And, you know, because of a star of that caliber is in the show, they think, oh, I've got to make this episode about her. Mm. And then why not the rest of the victims? You know, that that was my bugbear. With it. it was a bit of a gripe. That's fair enough. Mike, what are your thoughts? I, I think, especially with TV, there's always a problem is that, A, for us, you know, we love true crime and we're passionate about it. And we want to do it justice, not just for the story, not just for the families. But TV is, if you think about it, it's about entertainment and money. And when they commission things like this, it's they don't turn around to them and say, here you go, uh, you've got however many years you want to write and research this it literally is they will say right well you you on this budget for this year you need to have it delivered within six months so that's always the problem is is they're never going to have the time to do it justice when they need to unless they unless they've done the research way in advance and it's already as you say with like yorkshire ripper if it's based on a book and the evidence is all there great you can just turn you can just dramatize it but sometimes they're not i as Paul said, you know, there was a, a documentary on the Camden Ripper uh, on Channel 5. I think it was about three or four years ago. Same again. They got the name, two of the names of the victims wrong. Wow. And you just go, how can you do that? How can you? Surely someone at some point looked at this and said, is this correct? But they don't. They just trust the people to make it. And they're under a deadline. And uh, that's not the way you should be making mm-hmm programming about the most harrowing moment in a person's life Mm -hmm. of which their families are still there and still grieving even if it's 1970s they're still grieving i i still get messages from people whose families died in the 40s and they're still upset and you think that's 80 100 100 years ago coming up to and they're still upset and rightly so so it has to be as you say ethics have to be right Mm -hmm. And, and you're so right there, Mike. I talk a lot in my show about the ripple effect of murder lasting generations. Andy, what are your thoughts on this? No, I, I agree with what everyone said. It's it's interesting. We have to think that these people, they make these shows, they don't make them to be factual. They make them for pure 
engagement and entertainment and to sell advertising, as, as bad as that sounds. Um, so to them, it's the same as when people say car manufacturers, they allow for a margin of error, and these people do as well. They don't really care as long as they get the numbers in. And I think that's why it, it relies on us as the people who, who truly care to make sure we put the effort in and we do the research, we make sure that even when we do make mistakes then we actually own up to it. And I'm sure everyone here is the same. I've had a family members of one of our topics, one of my cases contact me and say to me, hey, you got these details wrong? A few little details. And I was mortified. And the first thing I said was, okay, educate me, tell me what I got wrong and I'll make sure we put these right. But, and that's where you talk about a ripple effects. The only way to truly make a change is then to make sure that we do what is right so people who listen to us then want the same thing from the bigger companies. But while they don't, and while it's a mass mass public who don't really care one way or the other, as long as it's entertaining, they'll, they'll carry on not caring, I believe. I agree. And, and do you know what? I th- you're right that if we kind of focus on getting it right, then hopefully the bigger companies will. But I think, I think there's also a, a big problem in true crime podcasting as well whether it's big companies like wondery or us little guys is the fact that i was listening to a a podcast by wondery the other day and they got so much wrong and yet there's quite a few podcasts kind of of our level who get things wrong as well and you just go how did you not check that like if it's a complicated detail i get that but if it's like as we say a victim's name Mm -hmm. how can anyone get that wrong i think i think i i think especially with true crime podcasting, I think there's too many people who, and I know we all know this, they come into this because they want money and fame, but they're not into this because they believe, because they because they love true crime, because yeah. they want to get it right. And I think... So, Mike, are you trying yep. to say that Vanilla Ice's um, podcast about Shergar wasn't born from true love? I haven't, I haven't heard that one. Is it good? <laughs> Uh, you, you can just imagine, can't you? But it's, what you said about Wondery is quite interesting. So they got all the names wrong, but did they still manage to find the time to put in their 30 adverts in the episode? Oh, God, yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. In, in fact, even I was listening to, I used to listen to No Such Thing as a Fish, and everyone praises their research. And it was only, like, I'd listen to the episodes, and I'd go, oh, that's fascinating. Oh, that's amazing. That's brilliant. And it was only when they started getting subjects, which I knew a lot about, like, unfortunately, volcanoes, coal mining don't ask me why but i know a shit lot about that um and i realized have an interesting cv you must make (laughs) do do you know what when when i was a teenager doing my a levels i was doing a level english and there was two questions in there about uh, volcanoes and coal mining and i got really excited and started writing and after one hour 45 minutes of a two-hour exam i went what the fuck's this got to do with English language? <laughs> and then I realised I was just writing about volcanoes. <laughs> uh, Which is why what? I failed my English A-level. <laughs> That's where you are now, Mike. Um, Grace, we haven't got too much time on these subjects, so maybe you can just sort of round off some more of your thoughts on this that we as maybe true crime creators should be thinking about going forward. Oh, sure. Um, and That's actually a really good point, I think, because... I I battle with it with every case I write. I mean, I I think it's something everyone's points have been have been um, really encouraging actually in terms of the work that I make and I'm I'm sure um, for everyone else as well. Um, I think the thing that I really struggled with at the beginning 
and I made a decision on it and I'm sticking to that decision is uh, the question came up about whether I would contact families of victims that I was that I was talking about and I made the decision quite early on other than two cases that I've covered to not contact um, the families and the reason I did that was because I read an article or heard a podcast or something about someone who had contacted a, a family member of a victim and they had they had said I don't want to talk about it and actually you just emailing me brings it up and brings it to the forefront and obviously that true crime podcaster was mortified to have done that but you can't predict how people are going to respond you can't predict if they it is it I think it's a, a slight invasion of privacy to that level um I still think consent uh, on the sort of larger productions is really important especially as we've spoken about when you're getting names wrong or when you're just getting really basic facts wrong as well um but I think in my work and in independent true crime podcast world I, I've made the decision to not contact families and I don't know if it's the right decision it's something that I think about quite a lot um I've I've come to terms with and made decisions that I've made um but I think it's something we should constantly think about and constantly come back to and if there is a case for example one of the early cases I covered was a survivor of a domestic um abuse incident and she was really up for talking to me and she was really glad that I was covering the case because she wanted to raise awareness of it so I think there are examples like that that we can all take from and probably all learn a lot from them and it's always useful to talk to people who've been through these things um especially if we haven't but yeah I think it's it's something to continuously think about if we can I certainly will be great so I mean guys we know this don't we we could talk about this for like five hours because there's so much to talk about but in instead we're going to move on and we're going to go to Andy again we don't know what Andy's bringing to the table so Andy over to you so I actually, I'm quite glad you went first, uh, Grace, because mine ties in nicely with yours. I wanted to talk about underreported crimes. Underreported in the sense of the victims underreporting them, but also underreported from the likes of us or um, media outlets not reporting them. So I want to give you a little example, but then go into my actual detail. So an example is, you think about white-collar crimes. Think about, say, the Enron scandal or Bernie Madoff, all you hear about is how the mighty have fallen, how these people are powerful and now they're either in jail or dead. But you have to also think tens of thousands, sometimes millions in these cases, of people's lives were ruined, but you never hear a single thing about these. And and the reason I wanted to bring this up, and I'm getting to my question in a minute, don't worry, Adam, is like, honour-based crimes are really important to me. And in the UK and around the world, especially in the UK, it's just not reported on. Or when it is reported on, it's reported on wrongly as a reason for the crimes. And um, I say honour base. I know people don't like that word, but that's how it's described. There is no honour in these crimes, just to put this out there. And my question is, it's essential to report on these because, you know, true crime storytelling, it's not just about engaging with the audience. It's about educating informing and sometimes advocating for change so how we have as podcasters a unique ability to shape a public conversation and to in, in situations exactly like this and to bring to the forefront issues that are often are overlooked so how do we do this while keeping engaging and making people want to listen well i think andy that um 
you know, you said about some things go unreported like that. I think it would depend on how quickly it's detected. If it's a domestic setting and straight away someone is arrested for it, it will make headlines in the paper the next day and then probably not until a trial nine months, a year later. And it's easily forgotten. It's like yesterday's, uh, tomorrow's fish and chip wrapper, you know, is a is a term, isn't it? Like, but um, but for example, let me give you an example, Paul. Sorry to cut you off there. For honor based crimes, the last stats um, that I got from memory, I believe, is every other day, usually a a girl or a female uh, adult woman dies in the UK from honor by honor based crimes. Yet, if it, that amount of people die every year, yet how often do you hear about it? Yeah, that, that's that, that's right. I mean, I think things will make more headlines than others. I mean, there's a sort of there's a there's a familiar side at the moment. It it seems like in um, Norfolk, I believe it is. Is it? Have you seen Have you seen this on the news? There's a like a family, two children, oh, yeah. man, woman found dead, stabbed, yeah. wounds in the house. It sounds like a familiar side, doesn't it? It happens much more often than you'd ever really want to believe but it's it's only the odd things that make headlines and I I, I, I do think as awful as it sounds I think it depends on the victim I do think it depends on the victim there's a reason why things like Madeline McCann are more famous than all the other children who've gone missing since then you know it's yeah it's sad but true that I reckon it, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's it's interesting. I was um, working on um, uh, a case for a school shooting today, and when you think of school shootings, you instantly think of Dunblane. But I'm not too far away from Dormers Wells, and how many people remember Dormers Wells the school shooting there? No. Probably most people have never heard of it, and in fact, most mm. local people have never heard of it. But it was eight years prior, and. I, I think that's another thing, even though Dunblane was tragic and, you know, we changed our gun laws based on that, which was right. Like Dorm as well, you know, some guys went into a school with assault weapons and started unloading. That was eight years earlier. And when we're talking about why we focus on some victims and not others, interestingly, I was talking to someone today and they said, just out of interest, were the victims in this school of a certain demographic. And I went, yeah, it was an Asian school. And they went, well, there, there it is. Mm. Why do you're right. Why do we focus on some people and not others? Why are some, I, I think there's that phrase, isn't it? The, the, the less dead, which I can't remember who was the American criminologist who talked about it, but he, he said, if you have a, a young, attractive young girl from a respectable family, like you said, with Madeline McCann, um, we're more likely to focus on that, whereas if it's a a young, unattractive, I hate to use that word, black boy from a poor family, will they really get the coverage that they need in order to solve the case and to get the attention that they need to help them? I think I, it, it's, it's a bad thing that the press do, and it's something that I think we, we need to clamp down on ourselves as an audience and say, why are you telling us about one story and not the other? Well, you, you said that, Mike. I looked through my Instagram about a year ago or two years ago. And I looked at the, I always post the pictures of victims to go over the story. 
and it was a very white Instagram Ooh. that I was looking at. So you're right. It, it's on us as well, isn't it? Grace, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I totally agree. I think um, I think in this instance, uh, and, and many instances, I think you've got we've got to ask ourselves what's the level of change we want to create. So, and like, how do we do that? As you say, Adam, if you look on your Instagram of the pictures of the cases you're covering, and you see a, a, an incredibly um, like one demographic, whatever it is, being in your instance white. I don't know, men, women, um, whatever you saw there. I think we have to think about how we change that scope ourselves but also how we in in terms of talking about change which Andy you brought up I think it's really important to to start these discussions like having this discussion discussion right now is really useful but also having to think about in the episodes like if if we cover a case that is um, a domestic abuse case of a young Asian woman are there charities that specifically support that that type of person, that demographic, that people who have had these things happen to them who might face different barriers or challenges in their lives in terms of seeking help or in terms of it them becoming underreported? Um, and do we can we talk to our audiences about that? Um, I'm sure we might go on to talk about this later. But for example, podcasting, it's quite hard to do that because there's less of a Q&A sort of forum to do that it's much easier on youtube for example or on tiktok or on instagram um it's just things i i think i've i've certainly noticed it as well dependent on what kind of channel i'm i'm on the more discussion there is and and then there's options for i don't know like even linking a charity in the description box below and pushing your audience towards that so they can have a read on it is gonna potentially give you a level of change that you wouldn't have if you didn't do that so, Andy, I know we've got to move on. Any final thoughts on what you've heard here today? I just I agree with everyone. And Grace, yeah, I, I agree completely with you. I've, in the past, I've touched space with a charity, actually around the honour-based um, abuse and killings. And not only did, was it good to give them exposure, actually, when you touch on what, what you spoke about, about the ethics, they were able to give me information that I couldn't find myself. And statistics that I couldn't find myself, so it was it was a win win situation. They got the exposure, and I could be more accurate. So yeah, I think I think it's just. And how do we do this? I think we just need to maybe sometimes look at a case that we might not necessarily automatically want to go towards, and then seeing what we can do to to promote the the backstory rather than just talk about the one individual case. No, good stuff, Andy. Thank you. Okay, so for everyone uh, watching and listening this evening, there's one story in the UK that's been dominating our minds, hasn't it? Uh, it's not about the, um, what's his name, the Manchester City left back and his family. It's not that one, it's the other one, post office. Come on, Mike, give us your view. What, what's, what the hell's going on at the post office? I mean, oh, God, it's it's interesting because I listen to the uh, Private Eye podcast and kind of Private Eye after Computer World were the kind of the second group who've been banging on about this for absolutely ages. And it's it's fascinating that it has taken a TV drama in order to make those in charge. And let's be honest about this. Yes, you've got the post office, but they are owned by the government. So this is government run. So and it's them putting the, the laws in place. It's amazing that it's it's got to this point where we have to wait for ITV to make a not particularly great drama, but okay, for us to go, we need to sort this out. And suddenly things are working-ish. Do you guys feel the same? Do you feel that this is 
too late. Well, not too late, but it should have been done 20 years ago. Yeah, yes, yeah, I do. I'm surprised the drama's taken so long to make, to be honest. I thought it would have been a couple of years before. But I've got I've got to say, personally, it makes me never want to use the post office again. I think it's an absolute disgrace. And I would hope prosecutions that that's what it would lead to. You can but hope. I doubt it will, but that's how it should be. Yes, absolutely disgraceful. It'll be the rich people protecting the rich people, won't it? Well, did you? I don't know if anyone read my blog. I, I wrote a blog about the executive bonuses for the post office board. Did you see? 25% of it was based on their interaction with the inquiry. And they said there was no impropriety, but they made it clear that they'd been given permission to give that pay that part of the bonus. And it was wrong. It was false information. They, they'd, they said they didn't lie, but they lied. And they paid the money. And so what happened when they were paid this money? They just said, I'm sorry, it was a mistake. We didn't mean anything. And yet the poor postmistresses and postmasters, I mean, Grace, they didn't get that chance, did they? No, not at all. I think it's uh, just to draw back on a point, um, I think, Mike, you said about it, it, it took a TV show to do this. And I, I, I'm not sure why it caused such a movement because this has been known about four years, um, and there've been there've been podcasts and things done on this before now. Um, but I think the reach that a TV show has, especially a TV show that is um, dramatizing a real life thing, there's something about that reach that is really, really interesting and has such scope. And I'm not sure why that is, but I find that quite fascinating. Um, and also in terms of the prosecutions I was reading about it today and I read that there have there have never been any prosecutions of the post office or of Fujitsu or any members of their staff um but since the tv show specifically the team investigating that now says that the post office is under criminal investigation over uh like potential fraud offenses um so so stuff might be happening but who knows if it will actually amount to anything 50 quid says they'll find a scapegoat and then the politicians who are doing the deals around this will go off they'll leave and they'll get a better mm -hmm. job in a in whatever the new post office is going to be which they always do yeah <laughs> i mean the politics is fascinating isn't it did you hear them last week whatever it was when rich sinak and some of the others say as if they've been doing the right thing and in his lot you might have seen it on peston he destroyed them he said what the hell have you been doing for the last number of years andy you're in ireland what's your take on it what's what's the media like over there about it uh, well, actually, funny you say that, because my wife said to me in the car yesterday, my wife is not British, so she said to me, did you hear about what happened with the post office in the UK? So, and she was chatting to it with people in her workplace, so it's it's reached over here. And I was like, yeah, I heard about it years ago, but I kind of forgotten about it. And uh, obviously we don't get the t English telly, so we don't watch it, but the actual show, but I was, I agree. I think what will personally will happen is they'll take years putting an inquiry into place, and then people be gone, they'll be retired, they'll be dead. It won't particularly matter too much. People have forgotten about it. People won't have remember a TV drama from a year or two ago, and it'll be less new. So even if something does happen, it won't have an impact. And I don't think it'll make that much of a change because they, they know how to eat these things out. So the best way to stop something being news is to make people forget about it, isn't it? But, um, but no, it, it's shocking what happened. I also also think if this 
if this wouldn't have been the post office, which is government run, if this was still the post office, which was a public company, wow, the government would be kicking up a massive fuss. There would be inquiries galore. People would be sacked. It, we would be going reeling from the ramifications. But I think because they still own it, it's arse covering. And that's all it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Vote them out. <laughs> if it's the real life victims isn't it For, I mean, what is it For, at least four have died by suicide yeah, yeah, they, yeah. it can't be made better can it no no, no. it's always uh, going to be too little too late isn't yeah. it mm-hmm. yeah oh, so shocking okay so before we go to Paul and his his item we've got a question here from N. Lee Hunt I said that very carefully you notice and they have asked <laughs> Um, let's go to let's go to Andy first of all. How do you deal with the difference between MSM, so mainstream media facts, and the actual facts? What do you think, Andy? Do, do you know what? I'm glad you told MSM then because I was I read that question. I was thinking, I hope it doesn't come to me. I don't know what that means, but um, you know. but yeah, how you deal with it is you have to. It's just all about research. If you were to go and believe the first thing that you read or the first thing that you Google then you're more than likely going to be wrong or you're probably going to be making an ITV drama. But um, <laughs> but no, it's all about research. And what I found is the more you look into something, the more official documents you can look at, that's how you can tell the difference between this is sens- sensationalised and this is nonsense and this is the actual truth and facts. So it's all about not taking as gospel the first thing that you see. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Mike, you're, uh, we know that you're Mr. Official Documents. You'd agree with that, I take it. Give me a document! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, do, do you know what? Um, I, I I totally agree with you. Like, you read something in the press, you read it in one newspaper, then you read it in the next, and then you read it in the next, and you realise the quotes are entirely different or they've been reshaped. And what I what I do quite often in... in in my podcast, especially with one of the last cases I did, was I'd give the audience what the press said, then I'd tell them what each individual um, witness said. Because even if you get statements from witnesses who actually saw the scene, even that can be entirely different as well. So it's often, even though people might be telling the truth, it's perspective, isn't it? Which is... I think it is our job, and, and Andy rightfully says, you know, you've got to work out the wheat from the chaff, but also you've got to work out, if you've got an official source, how much of that is accurate as well and truthful. So it's it's, it's a hard game, and you've just got to do it right. And, and Paul, you go into loads of depth. Some of your arcs going seven, nine shows. What's your approach to this? So it, it basically, it's the same as what Mike and Andy have just said, really. It's about research and constant research as much as you can get for the and then you, you, you sort of sort the wheat from the chaff and it basically writes itself but if there's say there's a point there might be two different opinions on something like that what i will do personally is address that in the episode so if i don't know which one is right i'll say now this is a point of ambiguity because such and such says this and such and such says that so you can still use the information. It's up to the listener then to go with whatever, you know, but it's research is the key. There, there's no excuse for poor research, really. No, it's, back, it's back to what Grace said initially. And Grace, when you're researching your stories, do you use a lot of mainstream media? 
Um, yeah, I would say I use a mix. And just to add on uh, with Paul there, I think, yeah, I, I often address it in the, in the episode if there's a couple of pieces of information and I can't solidify or corroborate one of them. I'll just, I'll just say and, and let the audience make up their minds. And I think also it's important that we, uh, I think Andy, you were speaking about this earlier, but if you make a mistake, just let the audience know on the next episode or whenever. I think I always love that when I hear um, podcasts say that, I always feel like I can really trust the information they're giving. Because even if someone has made a mistake, we all do, at least I know that it will be rectified at some point or they're open and humble enough to to talk about it. Um, and that's the only way that, I, I think that's the only way you can, because there will be, discrepancies online especially if you're using lots of different sources and as we've spoken about if there's lots of different versions of the events um yeah that makes a lot of sense over to you then paul what what do you want to bring to us this evening okay so i want to bring it's it's a bit of a question really about should something happen and i'm referring to the horrendous story recently of this poor little child starving to death with his dead dad you must have heard about this story yeah from Norfolk, it's a two-year-old boy. He's last seen on the 27th, the 26th of December, when a neighbor waves from. The neighbor texts the dad the next day, he texts back. They don't hear, a social worker, sorry, uh, arranges a meeting for the 2nd of January. Now, this kid, I should say, and I'm not trying to generalize here, but he comes from a problem family shall we say there's things like alcoholism and kids going into care in it so he's under care of children's services right now the social worker turns up on the 2nd of january and there's no answer so they call the police to effect an arrest and it doesn't happen three days later the social worker goes back again there's no answer again calls the police they don't affect um but they don't enter the property it takes to the 9th of January for the social worker to be let in by a landlord and they find these two dead. Now, the dad is supposedly been dead for about 11 days and you don't know how long this poor little child has been there. But the Children's um, Services Authority head says that social workers don't have the lawful right to force entry to a property. That's what they call the police for. Now... This hasn't happened twice with a with a kid of two at risk. So my question should be is why have police not affected entry and they've referred themselves to the IOPC about this? Why have they not affected entry and should social workers in such a situation have the, pro have the power to affect entry to a property like that? Because with proper identification and justification, what's the problem? Who, what what court would prosecute someone for that? And I mean, the list of children who slip through the net due to cutbacks and things like this is horrendous. So that's my question, really. Should social services have that power of the police and it might just save a life like Little Bronson? What, what do you think, Grace? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, I think it's such a tricky subject because it opens the door to many many like issues that would come along with that however I do think with social services in particular 
we trust social services to look after children and people who are vulnerable and in need of support. And so if we're not giving them the tools or the ability to go in and save a child's life in that scenario, then then where where does it where does it stop? Where do you take away that um, ability to support the child or to save the child's life? And I think is that I don't know I don't know what I would answer that because I don't I don't think it's super clear cut, but definitely something needs to change. Otherwise, this I'm sure this has happened loads before, and we probably just this is in the news now, so that's why we're talking about it. But I'm sure it happens an awful lot more than we than we hear of um yeah it's definitely something that we need to keep talking about but I don't have an answer I'm not sure come, come on Andy you've got an answer I can see it on your lips I have got an answer because I don't know this case um uh, it sounds tragic but unfortunately how many times do we hear the same thing about different cases happen um in answer to your question no I don't think the social services should have the right to force entry however I do believe they should have the right to force the police to actually listen. It sounds in this situation like the police have tried to categorize this, categorize it wrong, and it just didn't it didn't become a priority for them. So the social services should have some sort of power, I believe, to say to the police, hey, look, this person is vulnerable or this person is in danger. You have to go now and deal with this. But I don't think they have because if you give them the right to force entry themselves, then you're opening them up to them being maybe injured or hurt or or situations like that. But if you give them the power to, for, it's no good. The police refer themselves afterwards. How many times do you see that the damage is done? People have died by them. Yeah. But if they can turn around to the police and say, "This is category A or whatever," you go and deal with this now. Then they should have that power. I believe. No, I agree with you, and Mike. What are your thoughts? I've got one word for you: cutbacks. And that's what all of this is based in right, down right, to, isn't, isn't, isn't that two words? Uh, hyphenated. Okay, <laughs> oh, no, right, no, I think on. it's one word, isn't it? Let me, let me Google it. Um, <laughs> I, I, well, let's call it 12. I've got no idea. I think that's the problem. It's, it's all down to money, isn't it? Whether you're talking mm. about social workers of which we don't have enough yeah. or you're talking about the police of which we don't have enough. Mm. At the end of the day, they're, they're having to prioritise things. And as we all know, they can all do a great job, or sometimes people can do not a very good job. But, you know, uh, things slip through the net. And unfortunately, it's always these tragic cases, isn't it? It's it's like how many how many young kids are kind of sitting in horrible situations right at this very moment with parents who aren't dead, but are probably zonked out on drugs and have no idea what they're doing. And yet nothing can really be done because they haven't got the money and the time in order to put the priority onto the cases that they need and things do slip through. And I, I'm guessing uh, same as Andy, I, I, I haven't heard much about this case, but um, I think this is just going to be down to money, isn't it? Money, cutbacks, lack of staff, mm -hmm. lack of training. We need to invest more, don't we? But is that going to happen? No. Sadly familiar, isn't it? Paul, any conclusions for this part of the show? I, mean, I, I take on board the comments that Grace, Andy and uh, Mike have made. And there are, there are some fabulous comments in the um, comment section I'm reading, especially one from Rachel, who's a social worker herself. And I completely agree with that. I'm not, not saying that you know, what I profess is right, but it seems that something should be done because this is a horrendous case. And... As you say, if, how many more do we not know about that 
yeah, so it's just it, it there is no easy fix, I don't think. There really isn't, but there should no, be. I agree. And yet we keep reading this stuff and every time we hear it, it just it destroys you, doesn't it? As Bethan said in the comments, yeah. it makes you cry, Wonderful. it doesn't make you cry, it's so sad. Mm. Um Mike, what are you gonna bring to us tonight? <laughs> Do you know what I was going to bring to the table? Uh, true crime podcaster ethics. <laughs> so, it's it's interesting that we're all kind of on the same beam here, and this is kind of a key thing that is kind of key to discuss. So I won't go back to that. Um, here's just a question that I wanted to ask you all. With true crime, is there too much of a focus on the killer and not the victim? And why? So it's interesting, isn't it? If you go into, if you watch any documentary and it'll always, as you say, like Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, Dennis Nielsen, but you don't get, you rarely get documentaries about victims. If you go into uh, Waterstones and you look at a bookshop, you will see hundreds of books on Jack the Ripper, all, you know, all these crap cases, but very little on the victims. And why? Why do we not care? Should we? Yeah. Well, you know, look at Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy. It's outrageous. Paul, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah it's... The victims don't... I mean, everybody will know who Richard Ramirez is, for example, right? He gets like married... Well, he did when he was alive. Got marriage proposals and all that. But name one of his victims. Mm. You just can't do it. Can't, because they become secondary, really. And I do hate this celebritizing killers and everything i think i find it obscene i find it bizarre bordering on the mentally ill but it obscene to do that and i i as a, a, same with the dharma series that we mentioned before you know i mean that's sensationalizing him it, it's you couldn't name any of the victims at all and i think it's easier because they're nicely boxed off you know you can learn everything about that person because someone will study their life from birth to death say Sutcliffe when he's put away that, that's him you can quantify everything but his victims you know no one's going to talk to their childhood friends or find out their hobbies what what pets they had you know and it should be important like that because without these people the the, the wrong focus of fame doesn't get that because these people make it and and yeah, I do. I think it's quite tragic. It's certainly, it's not something I try and do. I try to bring victim to, I don't even like the word victim. No. You know, it's, I, I try and bring that person to life because it's about them. Be compassionate, you know. Yeah. No, I, I know that in your podcast. And Grace, I hear it in yours as well. You always bring the victims to life, don't you? Yeah, I mean that. To be honest, that's why I started the podcast. I, I during lockdown, I was listening to a lot of true crime podcasts and found that a lot of the content I was listening to was very perpetrator focused. And I was I was really interested in the victims. Um, actually, that's really interesting that you uh, talk, Paul, about not using the word victim because you're so right. These are fully rounded people and I was really interested in their lives. So yeah, that that's why I started Red Rum. What I will say about that is. Uh, we were talking earlier about mainstream media there's a lot of information on the perpetrators not so much information on the victims usually and I find uh, I don't know if everyone else finds this as well but when researching usually I find the most 
information on the people, on the victims, when there has been a book written specifically about the case, when it is just using mainstream media or or anything out there that is like very easily accessible, it tends to be perpetrator focused. So it doesn't surprise me, having worked in this field for for three or four years, it doesn't surprise me that most of the content out there is perpetrator focused because it's easy to access that material. You really have to dig for the other stuff. It takes a lot longer. It's a lot more effort. It oftentimes costs more money to do and put more resource into. So it doesn't surprise me, but it's really it's a really tragic thing, I think, that then that cases aren't more focused on the victims. I agree with you. Whenever I see, I saw actually um, on Friday, I posted something on my um, my Instagram, a, a quote from Jeffrey uh, Damer, and I felt really bad about it. But when I searched Jeffrey Damer online, there was so much, and as to your points, really, there's nothing. I couldn't tell you one of his victims' names. There's loads about him. What about you, Andy? What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I agree with what everyone said. Also, Bob made a very good uh, point in the in the comments. People have always been attracted to the usual, to the macabre, to something which is not normal for them. So people, unfortunately, I think the reason why they're so much perpetrated on the killers because people want to hear about the people who could be willingly do such things and they want the details and they want the gory details. Like like Bob said, you used to get hundreds of thousands of people turn up to executions in used to be whole books written about the killers in the past and sometimes the victims, you'd be lucky if you got the name. I'm talking decades ago here. So I think it's unfortunately natural instincts of humans to want to lean towards the horrible, nasty stuff because it's not what they would do themselves. Um, I'm not saying that's right. And it's good that we have people here and and other um, people create content who are willing to speak about the victims or speak about the people and speak about their lives and who they were. Um, So, yeah. And Bethan's raised an interesting point. Um, she asked in the questions, do you think it's also little that the murderer's life becomes public knowledge, but the victim's family want to move away, move on? What do you think, Mike? Yeah, it's it's a complicated one, isn't it? Because it's the most tragic moment in their lives. Mm. And when they've got resolution, i.e. going to court, they pretty much want want it to be over, don't they? They don't want to be, as I think it was Grace, you, you said that, about them reliving it every time someone contacts them they really relive it and they do they relive the trauma so i totally agree yeah yeah any other thoughts on this topic before we move on i think i think there's one the problem with this is that we still live in an era where victims like you're saying it's hard to get information about them but if you look in most of the press or quite often in TV shows and podcasts and things like that, when you look at a victim, all you hear is name, age, collection of injuries, because that's all they are, for, especially for the people who want to create entertainment and w- want it to be exciting. And, it, and it's entirely wrong. Quite often, even if you look at someone like Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy, the only reason we know about them is because it's a stepping stone to find out who he is and what he's about. It's all about the psychology of the killer. Mm. And I think we need to break away from that. We need to stop thinking, wow, killers are intelligent and fascinating and witty. And oh, look how they outwitted the police. No, they didn't. It's, it, 
it's entirely wrong and we need we need to entirely break away from that mm. and uh, i know it's great. a controversial thing to say because people people who like true crime want to know about killers but we need to not and, and this is something that i discussed i i did an interview with stuart from british murders the other day and i talked about it a lot that fine line what is true crime is it entertainment i kind of think it is to an extent but it's also telling a story what what do you think? Where does the line where does the line fall down here? I, I think it I think it's um it, it's it falls more to the entertainment category if you have if you advertise yourself as a crime comedy podcast because that just to me they, they don't work together. It's it should be one or the other. It's nothing funny about it at all and for people who do show like that i would say go out and do an entertainment show you know don't try and be factual yeah it, it, it doesn't blur to me i think i do see what you're saying because people will listen to you to go to bed they'll be entertained by listening to you in the gym or whatever so there's entertainment in that respect but it's not an entertaining subject. It's a you like you you bring in people's stories. Yeah, you know it's about them being heard, whether someone is entertained or not, as long as their stories out there. What about what about you, Grace? Is your show entertainment? Mm -hmm. I think um, it probably comes down to the people that are listening to it. I think. Um, it's it's really complex. I think I, I personally, as a woman, that most of my audience are women, and I know there's a massive uh, focus on why are women so interested in true crime. And I think part of it is the fascination with it for sure, but also I think this was a subconscious for me thing for me at the start, and it probably still is to a point. But I'm like, how can I protect myself? Because I because I'm in danger. Every single day I go out as a woman, I am in danger. And obviously making a true crime podcast, I think literally I'm going to die every single day. It's just on my mind all the time. Doesn't necessarily mean that will happen. Um, but I think because I surround myself with that information, I feel slightly more protected, which I don't think is actually necessarily true. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons I listen. and I think a lot of my listeners do. But also, I think, yes, it it is entertaining um, in the sense that I'm quite fascinated to hear the details of what happened. I'm quite fascinated to listen to a story. My other my other work, aside from podcast, is to do with storytelling. I think I've always been interested in that. But I think that's something that is is quite universal to people generally. And I imagine a reason why a lot of people listen is to hear the story, to hear it build up. And I know I've listened to quite a lot of the podcasts that you guys make. And I know a lot of them are very storytelling. So I that's why I listen to them as well. Are you an entertainer, Andy? I think we're all entertainers, if I'm being perfectly honest. We how why we entertain is an important question. If it's to inform and to educate and to be an advocate that's a good thing if it's to just get fame and attention maybe that's not a good thing but um, i think we're all entertainers in one way or the other i do believe just to add a positive slant on if if that's okay if you look at other areas in society attitudes towards women attitudes towards minorities and attitudes towards 
or as many other groups. If you go back even 30, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, if you look at it now, some of that was shocking, but society is slowly starting to change. And I feel that is we're at the very we're the wild west when it comes to this. We're at the very start of this, but I do believe in maybe 20, 30 years' time, people might be looking back and thinking, wow, why did people used to make this type of content? How could they get away with it? And I think we're at the very start of it, so it's it's good we're having this conversation, but I do think there is hope. I don't think we can we can give up and um hide our heads in the sand um anymore i get that um we've got about eight minutes left so should we just quickly worry race around any final thoughts that we've got on this uh this sunday evening mike should we start with you no (laughs) (laughs) that was it um here's an idea um with with cases how soon is too soon or is too soon as you were saying, like victims' families are kind of still grieving, and especially uh, as you were saying with Paul, with that case you just mentioned, that's fresh right now. Mm-hmm. So, if someone was to do a podcast about that this week or even this year, is that too soon? Yes, completely. Because, well, the one I just mentioned, the facts aren't fully out yet. So, surely, why would you do something and then the week after you've put it out, a whole new story? that stems from it comes out and you've got to redo it again you know i think like give it a year there are plenty plenty of other tales that you can search out you know no 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 i'd never do anything fresh like that i wouldn't too soon that's interesting i know that bob and um, ali from twisted britain are in the um are in the chat and and they're very much the, that's why they choose really old cases because they think about the families and um, grace what are your thoughts um yes i i uh i think i don't know when is too so i i think because we've mentioned it a lot of a lot of times in today's chat about families still grieving 80 years 100 years after the event um i i don't i don't think there is a time that is a good time um but i agree i mean there's a sensitivity issue isn't there you don't want to cover i i agree i wouldn't want to cover something that has just happened or that is in the news currently i might want to talk about it i might find it interesting to talk about it might be topical um but i probably wouldn't cover a case like that uh, immediately what about you andy um i've i've wrangled with this question quite a lot in the past i usually have a cut off where i won't cover anything where there hasn't been a full um, full judicial procedure. So court case and or appeal, if it looks like there could be an appeal. Um, I know that sometimes it's, it's different and sometimes people can cover things a little bit closer, which, which sometimes is okay because it keeps it fresh in people's minds, but it, it's very, very unique situations. But me, myself, no, I wouldn't. Like like Paul said, it's the last thing you want to be doing is talking about something on the facts that you know a month or two later, different facts come out and you realise that you was completely wrong and you were being sensationalist yourself. But it's a really tough question because you leave it too long and people won't want to listen and therefore you can't do the educational piece. But it's too soon and you just you're not getting all the information. So it's a question I think everyone has to answer themselves individually, but 
myself, I like to at least wait for the judicial procedure to be complete. What about you, Mike? You asked the question. What's the answer? Yeah, I agree. It's um, I, I, I it, it is always a difficult one because even like I'm kind of working on a case that's like, say like I, I did a case about two or three years ago, which was the ni- early 1970s, and I thought that's fine, you know, 1970s. I was I wasn't even born then. <laughs> um, <laughs> but interestingly, I, I do get calls from families. I do get calls from victims' families and the perpetrators' families, and when you're talking to them on the phone direct you can hear it in their voices that the pain is still there so i I, same as you guys i wrangle with it all the time about trying to work out how i should tell the story to do it in a sympathetic way always from the victim's perspective but also thinking to myself if this was my family and i read this or heard this how would i feel Mm -hmm. and i think too often with podcasting tv even books as well, they don't think about that first. Quite often, they will just think about money, fame, attention. Mm. That's true. Okay, so we've got about three minutes left. So why not I throw something into the mix? I know you're dying to answer this question. So if you were an animal, what animal would you be? Andy? You know what? This question haunts me because I lost a student union uh, presidency over this question. But... um the answer I gave back then, uh, some almost 30 years ago, was I'd be a cat uh, because I could la- laze around and do nothing all day and get fed and get attention. But um, So I'll stick with that one, I think. I bet you, Grace. Um, I'd be a dog because I am nearly 30 years old and have been desperate for a dog since I was about two. I think my mum's probably watching this. So, mum, for my birthday, <laughs> get me a dog and I'll be a dog with the dog. How about you, Paul? I know you're dying to answer this question. I'd have to be a koala bear, I think, because, because everybody wants to cuddle it. Yes. What about your pussy? Yeah. Downstairs, fast asleep. Oh. Where he has been for the whole day. Legend. Legend. See, back, to, back to you, Andy, about being a cat. It's a great life, isn't it? Yeah. Um, last but not least, Mike. What would you be? So, they're so annoying because literally I was going to say koala, but not for the not for those reasons. The reasons is you can spend all day basically asleep and stoned out your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. There you well, go. There we go. Well, on that bombshell. Um, so Mike and Paul, as usual, my co-host. This is our first episode. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. It's been all right, isn't it? Yeah, it's been great. Good yeah. fun. And a huge thank you, Mike, Paul. I'm sure you'd agree with me to Grace and Andy. Picture the scene in Red Run Podcast. Great shows. We recommend everyone watches and listens to them. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. So be safe in the storm, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lots of love. Hang on, they've gone. Why have they gone?